For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in Hebrews chapter 3. Just a reminder of the audience here, the situation behind the book. Uh, These guys are from a Jewish background. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, And um, they're suffering. They're having a hard time because Judaism itself in Jerusalem is kind of being divided over the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? What was he about? Is he the fulfillment and the promise of the scriptures? Is he the Messiah? And uh, people are coming to different conclusions about these things within synagogues and within families. So the author starts out, and we've been doing some pretty heavy theological lifting uh, the last several weeks because the argument that the author begins with is the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is God, he is human, he's the Messiah, and that he is the fulfillment of everything that God has been planning through the Jewish people going all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And so he's been establishing that from the Hebrew scriptures to give them confidence that it is good and right to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a new program. This is not a new God. This is the fulfillment of what God has been trying to do all along. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 3 and the first section of it, he's doing his last Jesus is better than thing. And he gets to, he saves the big one for for last. He says, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, if you're a first century Hebrew, you know, Moses is like the combination of Captain America, Iron Man, and the Hulk. He's all the Avengers tied into one. In terms of like, from, the, from childhood, you've been hearing about this great hero, Moses. And the author, being a Hebrew himself from that background, knows this, and he saves it for last. And just like, boom, he's more, he's counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just, house, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. From the Hebrew perspective, you know, we can go and just to give you an idea of how elevated Moses was in their traditions, not looking at Old Testament traditions, but looking at Hebrew traditions outside of the Bible, we find things like Moses was born circumcised. He just came out Jewish, you know, just super, you know, begotten of God. He was able to walk immediately after his birth according to Yahweh 940, and he spoke with his father and mother on the day of his birth, which I would think would be quite awkward. <laughs> but this just gives you an idea of, of, <laughs> of the history of the, the, the power behind the thinking of who Moses is and the role he played to this audience. It's like, Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses. He says in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. We have no beef with Moses. Moses was great for testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. 
Moses was the greatest servant of God. But Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus has come to eliminate the barrier between us and God so that we would not only be servants of God like Moses, but we could become children of God like Christ. That's what he's doing. So this whole section that we've been reading up to this point is really focused on Jesus as the object of our faith. That he is the one we should be putting our faith in. He's the most trustworthy, accurate, full depiction of who God is. He's the most authoritative source for our understanding of God's will. He's saying the angels, the prophets, the scripture, Moses himself are all servants of God who point to Jesus Christ, who's the son of God. So it's essential that we understand that up to this point, he's just being like, this is the pinnacle of God showing us who he is. And everything that is true about God is true about Jesus Christ. And then he begins to pivot and get more practical about faith. So what does it look like to have faith? We're moving from Jesus as the object of faith to discussing what is the nature of faith itself. And he begins that discussion here in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so the author, again, is doing what he does so frequently, which he's quoting the Old Testament. That's why the font changed there. And if you look at the words that he's using, we can discover that he's quoting Psalm 95. The Hebrew scriptures, he's using this to explain, don't be like the wilderness generation. As the psalmist says in Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts. And so this raises a whole quest, a whole host of issues that we have to work through some of the history and some of the background to be able to understand. So the logical thing would be to go back to Psalm 95, what he's quoting. It's like, that's what the author, the author assumes that his audience knows this Psalm and knows what it's talking about. That's not a safe assumption with 21st century Americans. So we go back to Psalm 95 and we read, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as in the day of Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. So the author of Psalms in Psalm 95 is referring back to another group of people who, if you know your Old Testament, would make sense. But we've got the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95, and we've got the authors of Psalm 95 talking about something that happened in Exodus. Do You see how deeply rooted this is in the, in the culture and the history and the understanding of the Old Testament, because this is a Hebrew audience. And so what happened at Meribah and Massa, and what is hardening your heart? This issue of hardening your heart is something that comes up from time to time in Scripture. It doesn't sound good. 
And he's warning, the author of Hebrews is warning his audience, don't be like the wilderness generation and harden your heart. But if we want to understand what that really means, I think we have to go back to the root. And we have to find out what happened at Meribah and Massah. So we go back yet again to the book of Exodus, chapter 17, there's verses 3 through 4. And this is the Exodus generation. These are the people who had spent 400 years of slavery under Egypt. And God had raised up Moses among them to lead them out. Moses told Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and God brought the plagues and he parted the Red Sea and they were following God and they had been promised that he had a land for them where that was flowing with milk and honey. It was the land that he had promised their father Abraham and they were finally going to take ownership and see the fulfillment of God's promises for their people. But on the way, the people of Israel who had seen so much of God's power work in their favor they had problems they got scared they got hungry they got thirsty at one point they're wandering around in the desert on the way to the promised land and you know we have to put ourselves in their shoes they're people who have been through a lot of hardship and yes God is doing powerful things but you know when you're walking around in the desert with your two-year-old and your two-year-old's lips are cracking from thirst it can it can change your perspective in the moment. And so it says in Exodus 17, three through four, but the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, what shall I do with these people? A little more and they're gonna kill me. They're gonna stone me. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. So what Massa and Meribah are to the Jewish audience that, uh, uh, that are the recipients of the book of Hebrews is it's a reminder of rebellion against God. It's a reminder of how people can throw off God's leadership and they can follow God for a little while and they can see God do great things. That doesn't mean that you're going to keep following God. That there's a, an ongoing decision-making process in our lives when the question is, is are we going to keep telling God yes? So what happened at Massa and Meribah was the people grumbled, grumbled against God's leadership to the point where Lo Moses was pretty sure they were going to kill him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. So when the psalmist in Psalm 95 is talking about this, he's saying, remember when your fathers, God's saying, remember when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. These people had seen things that no generation had ever seen before. The power of God at work over and over and over again in many different ways. The wilderness generation was, were the recipients of some of the most visceral and powerful acts of God in human history. And Massa and Meribah were not unique incidents. There were quite a few times where the people began to suffer and began to grumble and began to cry out against Moses and began to cry out against God. You think about all the things that they had seen. We talked about the plagues. We talked about the parting of the Red Sea. You know, they're wandering in the desert. You need food and you need water. 
And how is God? There's, there's somewhere on the level of a million people wandering through the desert together. How are you going to feed that many people? It says that God would cause food to appear on the ground in the morning. It was called manna. And everyone could gather it and eat it. And it would fully meet all of their needs. They didn't even get sick while they were eating this. They said it tasted something like coriander seed. And it was strange. They looked at it and they didn't know what it was. They had no category for it. And they would literally say, what is it? That's what manna means. The stuff's called, what is it? (laughs) And so every day, they and their children and their families are fully fed, provided by a miracle. Where it just appears on the ground like dew. But, you know, eating the same thing day in, day out, even when... It totally makes you satisfied. It totally makes you full. It totally makes you healthy. They start to grumble in Numbers eleven five, And they say, remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt? There's probably more like fish heads that were thrown away by their masters. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. You know, your mouth starts to water as you think about this. And they're thinking back. And all of a sudden, Egypt doesn't seem that bad. But now, our appetite is gone. All we've got is this manna. And you know, what they're focused on is the immediacy of the situation and something that has become, something that is quite miraculous, that has become quite commonplace to them. To the point where they're grumbling, thinking about how good they had it when they were eating as slaves under the Egyptian empire and pining for the meals that they had Back in Egypt, when they crossed the Sinai Peninsula and they finally come to the land that God had promised them, they send in scouts to scout out the land and see, okay, this is what God has promised our people, but who's here? Word was that there were some really big uh, soldiers, there were really uh, powerful armies, and there were some great fortresses. And the question was, you know, how could this ragtag group of slaves come in and get organized militarily to take out the people that were already there. And the people they sent in to spy out the land came back and they were like, guys, we are in real trouble. We're like grasshoppers compared to these guys. They have high walls and trained men. I don't think we can do it. I don't think we can, I don't think we should even try. All except two, Joshua and Caleb, who were like, listen, God parted the Red Sea. God makes food show up on the ground every morning. God can give us this land. If God wants to give us this land, we should go in. And the people said, "Mm, too risky, too dangerous. Numbers 14.1, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried when they heard the report from the spies and they wept all night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron And the whole congregation said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us point a leader and return to Egypt. We're going to go back. God's like, would that you had died in the wilderness, eh? You would prefer that. And so that's what happens. God says, listen, if you're not going to have faith, if you're not going to believe in me, 
given all that you've seen, then this generation is, in fact, going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When this generation passes away, we'll try again with the next generation. I'm not giving up on you. I am a God who keeps his promises. But if you will not have faith and you will not believe, then I will not allow you to have the fullness and to experience the fullness of my plan for your people. We'll try it again, next generation. And so they missed out. They had seen something unbelievable, right? God extruding them from 400 years of slavery, and that was just the beginning of his plans for what he wanted to do for those people. He wanted them to experience his guiding hand, his miraculous hand, moving them into the land that he had promised them. In fact, it says 10 times they rebelled against God during this period. The last time was at Kadesh Barnea when they had sent in the spies. But up to this, 10 times they grumbled to the point, and every time it was the same, this isn't as good as Egypt, we should just go back, it's better. So I think we start to get a pretty good picture then of what it means to harden your heart. That's the goal. That's the, we want to understand when he talks about Masa and Meribah, and he talks about don't be like the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation had been rescued by God, had seen incredible acts of God and miracles, and had every reason to believe in the ongoing faithfulness of God. And they refused to keep following him because their circumstances were difficult. They went so far but reached a point where they would go no further and that limited what God would do in their lives because they said no to him. And so this is a very serious warning about hardening your hearts. Followers of God should not harden your hearts. We should beware of hardening our hearts. And he says the result of hardening your heart is you will not enter God's rest. And that does not sound good. You know, you read that and you're saying... What is God's rest? I understand now much more clearly what hardening my heart is, but if the result of hardening my heart is not entering God's rest, I really want to understand what that means. What's the penalty for hardening your heart? Well, the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, that there are not anyone uh, of you that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast, from, uh, fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that we are not able to enter because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel between this audience and the wilderness generation. And he's saying they hardened their hearts and were unable to enter God's rest. And you are in danger of the same thing. You have to be careful. You have to be alert. You have to be aware. Because if you succumb 
to the pressure, the persecution, and the difficulties of your circumstances, you will harden your heart and you will not enter God's rest either. And we say, well, it kind of seems like entering God's rest might be heaven. And if these are believers who are under this pressure, who are going to stop following God, does that mean if I stop following God or if I don't go all the way with God, does that mean that God's going to threaten me that I can't go to heaven? Or another alternative would be that for the wilderness generation, entering God's rest is, this, is just a way of talking about entering the land, experiencing the completeness, the fullness of God's plan. So look at what the author is doing here in comparing these generations. I think it's very helpful. The wilderness generation, we know God rescued them from Egypt. The audience of Hebrews, Jesus rescued them from judgment. The wilderness generation saw incredible miracles and God proved that he was trustworthy. The Hebrews generation saw Jesus do incredible miracles to prove that he was in fact from God and that his teachings were authoritative. The wilderness generation rebelled whenever they fell upon hard times. The Hebrew audience is falling on hard times. The wilderness generation refused to follow God any further once they came to Kadesh Barnea and they wanted to go back to Egypt. The Hebrew audience is in danger of giving up on Christ and going back to the synagogue and temple sacrifice. The wilderness generation didn't enter God's rest and they fell in the wilderness. And the audience of Hebrews is being warned that their fate could be the same as the wilderness generation if they don't persevere. So again, it really brings into focus that question, what was the fate of the wilderness generation? What happened to them? Is he saying that if you go so far with God, but go no further, then it's like you never believed at all? That we would undergo God's judgment? Is he threatening them with the fires of hell? Well, it all depends on what happened to that wilderness generation. The implications here are very important. If they went to hell because they refused to go into the land, then that says something about who God is. That's quite disconcerting. And it also says something about the author of Hebrews and the way that he would threaten his Christian audience, his believing audience. It tells us, really, is that even something that should be a motivator for Christians or not? This idea of judgment. The wilderness generation had problems, lots of problems. But they did follow God. They took the risk of gathering their children and heading out into the wilderness when God said, let's go. They listened to Moses stubbornly and it took them a while and God had to do a lot to convince them, but they did listen and they went and they believed in God enough to take their family and their children and their spouses and risk it all. They walked through the parting of the Red Sea. That would be pretty scary thinking this thing could just collapse in on me at any second. But if they were judged, then what does that mean for the Hebrew audience? And more importantly for us, what does that mean for us? Fortunately, we know absolutely the fate of the wilderness generation. In Numbers 14, 
we see Moses praying after the Kadesh Barnea incident. And he prays and he says, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven these people from Egypt even until now. You see what Moses does? He sees what's going on, that the people are literally ready to go back to Egypt. And he says, God, I know that we have grumbled and rebelled 10 times now, but each time you have forgiven these people because you are a great and loving God. And please, Lord, forgive them this time as well. I know it's horrendous, but give us your mercy. And God answers him in verse 20 and says, I have pardoned them according to your word. They are forgiven. But, indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and not listened to my voice, they shall no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. He says, I do forgive them. They are my people. They are forgiven. But there are consequences for hardening your heart. And the consequence for this generation that has now tested me these 10 times, who these 10 times have hardened their heart and told me no, is they will not see the rest of my plan. And we'll see what happens with their children in the next generation. God forgave them. This would have been deeply and well understood by the author of Hebrews, and this would have been perfectly well understood by the audience of Hebrews. It's a little less clear to us, but we can look back and we can understand. This would not have been a question for them. Was entering God's rest, was this a threat that they were going to be under God's judgment? This was clearly a case where hardening your heart Saying no to God as a follower of God, as a believer of God, does have consequences, but eternal judgment is not one of them. Not entering God's rest for the wilderness generation meant not going into the land. Not seeing the full promise of God that He has offered for you, that He wants for you, and that He is eager to give you in your life but limiting the power of God to continue working in your life because you feel like you no longer want to trust him and tell him yes. That's what hardening your heart is. And that wilderness generation missed out because of their unbelief. Now that we understand that, we can understand better what the author is saying. What is he telling these people? These followers of Jesus Christ, these Hebrew believers He's saying, I know what you're going through is hard. I know it's painful, but don't give up. Don't start saying no to God now. Don't be like your ancestors, the generation who fell in the wilderness, who saw so much of God's plan, but limited themselves severely of grabbing hold of the fullness of what God wanted to give them. He's saying, I know your guys' circumstances hard. Their circumstances were hard as well. 
But I want good things for you and I want you to see the fullness of what God has in store for you. And if you give up in the midst of this pressure and this suffering, you will not get to see the fullness of God's blessing in your life. It's clear that heaven and hell are not the concern, but there is a major concern here. They're in danger of falling short of receiving all the blessings that God has for them. And the author's point really is that this is something, while we shouldn't be living in concern of of hell fire as believers in Jesus Christ, there should be tension on our hearts. There should be concern about hardening our hearts and missing out on God's best. Because saying no to God is a slippery slope. They didn't say no to God once. They said it 10 times. 10 times they said, let's go back to Egypt. We're thirsty. We're hungry. Those guys are scary. We're, we're tired of Moses. We're tired of walking. All these things. And they repeatedly said no. And that's the thing about hardening your heart is the more that you do it, the tougher your heart becomes and the easier it becomes to harden your heart moving forward. The more you say no to God, the easier it is to say no to God. And your conscience becomes less sensitive. You become literally hardened in your thinking and less sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to the impact of God's word. To the resistance of temptation. And I know this because I'm an authority on it. All of us here have experienced this in one degree or another. We start out with God and it's yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And we see great things happening in our life. But then the incredible miracles of God and the incredible blessings of God in our lives become mundane. We forget how great they are. We forget how powerful the influence of God is in our lives. And it becomes an everyday thing like manna on the ground. And we start to say, well, I don't know. I'm not as happy as I would like to be. And I keep saying yes to God and I'm not as happy as I would like to be. Maybe I need to try some other things as well. I'm not going to reject God. I'm not going to deny him. But how long in my life, how many times do I need to say yes to God? And so there's in no way that believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have put our faith in his death on the cross, we are told that perfect love casts out fear. We are not supposed to live in fear of losing our salvation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.38 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither heights, nor depths, nor principalities, nor any created thing can rip us away from God's love once we become his children. So we're supposed to be confident that our faith in Jesus Christ will see us through into eternity, even as we don't do everything that we should do, even as we begin to harden our hearts. But we should also be aware and alert about the idea that God could do more with us in this life, that he has blessings for us, he has ways that he wants to use us, and that we are in full control of missing out. We have the power to limit some of the blessings and some of the good things that God wants to do in our life. 
And we experience this. I talk to people all the time who say, you know, I was real excited at the beginning, and as time has gone on, I just feel less sure, less excited, more distracted. My spiritual life is dry. I'm not sure that I want to go all the way with God. You know, I've gone some distance with God. And maybe this is far enough. Maybe, you know, I, I think I've done more than most. I've said yes to God. I've given him more of my life, more of my time, more of my energy, more of my money. And this is, this is good. I think I'm just going to stay here. And then we wonder why things start to dry up and why it's hard to hear the voice of God. We begin to lose our joy and God seems far off somehow. Like he's moved away from us, that he's, he's distanced himself. And we start to wonder, what did I do to offend God? The reality in those situations is, is that God hasn't gone anywhere. But as we continually go through that process of telling God no and hardening our heart, we move away from him. And then we say, God, where did you go? The point that the author is trying to make to his audience is check your heart. As you go through life and as you go through difficulties and as things don't go the way that you want and as you suffer and as your faith becomes dry and arid and you feel like you lose your joy, you have to go back to the truth. Is what you believe true? And where is your heart And what are you doing to guard your heart against the deceitfulness of sin? And so we'll close here by looking over the end of what we read from Hebrews and pulling out five ways that the author says they should check their heart. One, verse seven, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, to be sensitive to the voice of God, you have to be listening to the voice of God. This means taking time to be quiet before God, being regular in your connection with Him, spending time in His Word, spending time praying, spending time saying, okay, God, I've I've given you the list of all the things I would like you to do. I want to listen now and see if you have anything to say to me. Being receptive, being sensitive. You know, often God speaks in our hearts and in our minds in many ways throughout the day. And we've become so used to shoving it aside and being like, you know, we're walking down the street and we see somebody in pain. We see somebody sitting on the corner crying and God says, go over there and talk to them. And we're like, that was a weird thought. That would be awkward. I'm sure that person doesn't want to talk to me. Why should I get involved in their mess? They're just going to think I'm nosy. But maybe that was God telling you that you should do that. And you're arguing with him about why he's wrong. Being sensitive to do those little things throughout the day. You know, waking up each day with an attitude of God, help me hear your voice. Help me be guided by you. Help me to hear and respond and and be faithful. 
He's talking about upping your awareness, that living your life in a way where you know God is real, you know that the Spirit of God indwells all those who who accept Jesus as their Savior, and that the Spirit of God will guide us and speak. When was the last time you heard and you believed that you know that God spoke to you in your heart? Be alert. He won't shout. He often whispers. I had an experience many years ago now. I was uh, in seminary and I was writing my dissertation, my thesis on uh, devotional life uh, because I always wanted to study something that was a weak spot, right? I was not an expert in having a good devotional life. I still am not an expert in having a good devotional life. But I spent uh, several months looking at different approaches and different things and, and thinking a lot about it because this is something I want to be close to God and I want to I know Him. And we have this incredible nature path out here um, and our offices are here. So, you know, one of my favorite things to do is kind of walk and pray and kind of wrestle and, and just, I, I'm a little ADD, so it helps me to be moving, you know. And I was praying and I was doing one of these things. Have you ever done this where you're like, God, can you hear me? Like it just, it, I, I believed and I felt that God was so far off, you know, I, I was far from him and I didn't know why. And, you know, I wasn't like, you would, if you'd seen me on the path, you'd just see me walking, right? But in my heart, it was like I had to launch my prayers. I had to get escape velocity because God was so far out and he did something really cool. I was like, God, can you hear me? And he was like, in my heart, not audible or anything weird. He was like, you don't have to yell, I'm right here. <laughs> and it, it's just, it, it literally just like, if you'd have seen me then on the path, you'd have seen me be like. And it was just so true. It says that God dwells inside of us. Why am I thinking as God is like a universe away and I have to launch my prayers to him? You know, this, the, the, he's so close. He's so involved. The slightest whisper would be sufficient for him to hear. And it just showed me, again, how my thinking about God had been wrong. I had been feeling like God was far off, and he was like, I am as close to you as closeness gets. And that doesn't change on the basis of whether you feel like I'm close or not. And we have to remember those truths in times when it seems like God is far off. The author says, Don't harden your hearts. We have to listen and we have to guard our heart. There are going to be all these things that are competing for your heart, for your affection, for your attention. And you have to know what are the things that you are saying yes to. If you're not saying yes to God, you are saying yes to other things. And are you... Are you careful about the choices that you make? One of the things that always happens to me is I just become, as I'm moving away from God, as I'm hardening my heart without even necessarily fully realizing it, I notice a little red flag that pops up. I become increasingly aversive to spiritual things. I don't want to get that quiet time with God. I don't want to spend that time in the Word. I don't want to go to home church. I don't want to talk to people about what's going on. I don't want to do anything other than be selfish and seek comfort because I'm sad. And I become aversive to the things 
the very things that would solve the problem that I'm having. Because I need to stop saying no to God and start saying yes to Him. Another huge red flag that I'm hardening my heart is temptation starts to grow and take root and become stronger. Things that were not that hard to ignore before suddenly become very fascinating. And the pull of rebellion and toward uh, chaos and towards disobedience becomes stronger and stronger. Why? Because I'm starving the spiritual Ryan and feeding the carnal Ryan. And that's beginning stronger and stronger and beginning to take control. And so things that weren't that much of a temptation before start to become a great temptation. And we have to take a moment to realize that's happening in our lives, in our hearts, and say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm headed down the wrong path. When we do this, we begin to move away from people. Why? Because if we are hanging out with spiritual people, they are going to see very easily what's going on with us. And that's going to cause a conversation about something that we don't want to talk about or even think about in ourselves. So we start pushing people away. We start canceling hangout times. Or when we're around them, we try to keep the conversation very surfacey. You know, news, sports, and weather, not my heart, is not up for discussion today. And as we push people away, then we become more disgruntled and feeling like these people aren't really very loving after all. But we're holding them at arm's length because we have secrets that we don't want to address within ourselves. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be anyone of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care. Be intentional. He says in verse 3, but encourage one another day after day that part of guarding, guarding your heart and not allowing your heart to be hardened is to give generously of yourselves to others, to notice and to speak in a good word of encouragement. It's so fascinating. I think we always think of encouragement as something that we do for someone else. But here the author of Hebrews is telling us that encouraging others is something that we do to guard our hearts, to keep us from the deceitfulness of sin. Why? It's very difficult to encourage somebody if you're not paying attention to what they're doing. And it's very difficult to harden your heart and say no to God and move away from Him if you're being others-focused. The easiest thing in the world is just to withdraw into a smaller and smaller space where all you see is your own pain and your own suffering and the results of your own circumstances. And everybody else seems to be strange and ugly and wanting something and needy and you just withdraw. Because all you can do, you feel like you're on life support and all you can do at that point is take care of yourself. And that ensures spiritual failure because it is not good for man to be alone. We need to be lifting others up in prayer. We need to be building real spiritual relationships with each other. When you go out tonight and you do your potluck and you hang out, have real conversations about things that matter. Talk about your heart. Talk about your relationship with the Lord. Talk about your family. Talk about your marriage. Talk about your children. 
Ask each other good questions so that you can help one another and encourage one another and lift one another up. Don't just spend time talking about the things that don't matter that everyone talks about. Be a place, be a community where you can be real with each other. Speak words of bold love to one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the fourth point, is beware of the trap of sin. Ongoing sin makes it harder to hear God's voice. You say no to God and you go into rebellion. God's still there. He's still speaking. But you're harder to reach because you're becoming increasingly willful in rebellion against Him. You're building your case against other people and being consumed by bitterness. If you have bitterness in your heart towards someone in your, in your family or in your church and your community, I would encourage you to begin immediately praying for them. Because I have found that it's almost impossible to remain bitter for somebody that you're praying, not, I'm not saying cursing them, but pray for good things for them. Because there's something inherent in human nature that when you are rooting for somebody and when you're praying for somebody, you want your prayers to be answered. And so start praying for people that are hard. Start praying for people that you're judging. Start praying for people, you know, and, and I don't mean the prayer like, just help them be less stupid, God, you know. <laughs> I mean like, God, open their heart and let me see them through your eyes. Show me something good within them, God, that I can connect with and that I can encourage them on. The more we compromise, the more we let go, the more we go to the path of least resistance, the more we rebel. And finally, he says, if we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, the final thing is to just never quit. Don't quit. You may wake up one day and you may find that your heart is far from God, that you have hardened your heart and you've succumbed to the deceitfulness of sin and you are so far away and you are so alone and you are so disconnected. It doesn't seem like you could ever get back to where God, you and God were at one point. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because as many steps away that you take from God, it is one step back to face him to find that he is right there waiting with open arms to re-engage you, to lift you up, and to continue the path that you started down. He is the prodigal father just waiting and hoping, searching the horizon, waiting for us to return. And the moment he does, we do, he runs towards us with good gifts. That's the reality of who God is. The wilderness generation had a relationship with God. They saw the glory of God in many ways, but they missed out. They hardened their hearts, and just when God was going to do the greatest thing yet, they told him no. And they didn't get to participate. The Hebrew audience is in the same place. They're standing at Kadesh Barnea. They're thinking about, this is hard. I could just shut up. I could just stop talking about Jesus. I could go back to the synagogue and I could tell mom, I'm sorry. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And all of the pain and all of the suffering that I'm experiencing as a result of this would go away. But so would the opportunity to see what God was going to do next. And us, many of us, we begin and we walk and we are excited 
and we go up and we go down and our, t- our time with God, our heart with God, our, our connection to God seems to ebb and to flow. But let's commit together tonight to never being okay and saying this is good enough. Let's realize that we are going to fail. We are going to mess up. We are going to fall. But let's get back up and let's continue down the road for our whole lives because let's see what God has next. We have to persevere if we want to see the good things that God has for us. We'll close with this. Romans 5, 3 through 5, and it is not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Next week, we're going to talk more about this issue of God's rest. God, I just pray for anyone here tonight that's suffering, that feels like you're far away, that feels spiritually dry, uh, and um, just feels alone. I pray that you'll help them to have a breakthrough with you and with someone in their life here tonight, that they can, they can open up and talk about what's really going on. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you. I pray that uh, they would be able to engage in real spiritual conversations. They would be able to ask the burning questions that are in their heart without shame or fear of, 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 of admitting that they don't know, but that we could have real time together and real conversations that, that lead to life-changing revelations. And we thank you, God, that your word is so powerful and so relevant whether we're studying Hebrews written 2,000 years ago or Psalms written 3,000 years ago or Exodus written before that, uh, it all comes together and shows us the reality of the human experience and the goodness of our Creator. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.